as I said a few moments ago, as kind of a way to cap what we discussed yesterday in the uh, conference, I know that not all of you were able to be there. We will have those uh, sermons up on uh, our Gospel Coalition regional website in the next few days. But I think as a response to some of the things that, that uh, Dr. Carson talked about yesterday, it would be wise for us to do our own as I prayed just a moment ago, it doesn't do us any good to pretend like there aren't those compounding layers of problems right now, because they're there. Uh, they're there in all kinds of senses. There's sickness, there's the prospect of potential sickness. Of course, we have the struggle that we are joined in with Justin
the sufferings of Jesus himself and the sufferings of his people. And the reason it's so critical that we see that intersection of suffering between the second person of the Trinity and we, the fallen rebels, whom he made in his image, the reason why it's so necessary to see that intersection is that's the only chance we've got for it to get better. And that intersection is the only place to which we can look, and maybe I can say the only person to whom we can look for hope when we recognize just how fragile and frankly broken this world yet is. So we are aiming today to, to see that intersection and to see how God has not left us alone. The first thing I want us to see today is that suffering is a result of our suffering is a result of fall. <clears throat> now this is not a surprise to you. This is what we've been studying together in Genesis. Unless you think that we are studying Genesis just to fill some time on Sunday, not what we're doing. The reason we're studying Genesis is we want, we want to give you bricks. We've used that metaphor several times today. We're building a wall for our faith. Genesis gives us lots of bricks, and in fact, Genesis in some ways provides some scaffolding as we arrange and erect the wall. It provides us with an understanding of, of how it all started and, and hints at what is to come. Turn with me, please, to Genesis 3. So this should be familiar ground for us. This, this gives us terrain that we have trod before. We've been here. It's familiar to us. This is, this is helping you with scaffolding to think through the Bible story. We know from Genesis chapters 1 and 2 that the primary message that Moses wanted to give the people of Israel is that God made everything. And any competing deity that claims otherwise is false. And not only did he make everything, not only does it claim his power and call them to exclusive worship, he made it in such a fashion that they could enjoy it. It was a sign that he loved them. He gave them a rule. Remember, I made this world. You owe your allegiance to me. And it shouldn't be hard to maintain that allegiance because you're perfect. And as long as you stay connected to me and trust me, drawing all your knowledge of good and evil, and your resources for life and joy, you will live in perpetual happiness. You gave them a choice. You can do that in faith. You can trust me. Or you can reject that. You can seek to become your own deities, your own rulers. But if you do that, if you choose to break that rule, you will die. You will be cut off the source of all that is good. And despite the fact that they had everything, they were the regents of the world. There was nothing that they lacked. They gave it up. Because they wanted to be like God. They wanted to pursue knowledge of good and evil on their own rather than trusting Him to impart these things to them. In an effort to set up their own kingdom on this planet, instead they were plunged into sin and to curse. 
And it's interesting that not only were they themselves cursed, but all their offspring were, and even beyond that, even the ground itself. God told them this was not an unfair punishment. He had told them this would happen. Yet they, they then they chose otherwise, and then they suffered the consequences. And so the fabric of creation began to be stretched and frayed, and there were there were things in the garments of the of the world that began to tear apart. Suffering is a result of the fall. We have seen, have we not, that suffering is just endemic to this world. It's just everywhere. It's tied up in the fabric of the very fabric of creation. And, and then we ourselves, we, we can feel it, we can sense it. It's like, it's like a low ebb all the time. We, we can almost hear it humming. That's what this world's like. There's, there's a hum. There's a reminder that this place is not quite right. Suffering is a result of the fall. It wasn't built into creation. It was a result of mankind's decision. Of course, you know the rest of the story. We've studied up to this point. As bad as Adam and Eve's sin was, the sin of their eldest son was worse. He killed his own brother and Things got worse and worse. So by the time you get to chapter 6, it's so bad that God kind of returns the earth to a primordial state where it's covered in water again, like it was at the beginning of Genesis 1. He decreates, then he puts it back into shape, and he gives humanity a chance. But, but that's not a surprise, because he said he would. We'll come back to Suffering is the result of the fall. Suffering because of our own sin, the choices we make and the consequences of them. Most of us are at a point, are we not, that we believe in rational moments that sin will not make us happy. You're sitting there in those very comfortable metal chairs today. And by the way, when I heard preach last week, I felt your pain because I had to join you. Because now I forget. And I remember again in a year or so when he preaches. But at any rate, uh, sitting there in your metal chair today in a rational state of mind, with your Bibles open, with your brothers and sisters, you can say theologically and truthfully, sin isn't good. Sin never leads to happiness. And yet in the irrational moments, which frankly and sadly are far too common, people believe that it does. You give in. We suffer as a result of such irrational choices. We suffer from the irrational choices of others. We suffer from the irrational choices of our first parents, which have led to the fabric of the world coming undone. And so all around us, because of sin, whether it's ours or others, we, we, we see the choices. And then frankly, as you go on throughout the rest of the Bible, this is really the second thing I want to say to you today. Suffering is a motif runs throughout the story of redemptive history. That is to say, it's a theme that you see being played out throughout the rest of human history. Think about this. Not only did Adam and Eve suffer, 
people suffer. You can blame it on Cain, or you could blame it on the very parents who grieved him. Joseph, we're just going to jump big swaths of years here. Joseph suffered. Dr. Carson took us through Genesis 39 yesterday that we might consider Joseph's own sufferings. How they not only affected him, but were connected to the broader sufferings of Israel through whom the Messiah would come. Joseph was mistreated and mishandled, not because of his own sin, because of the sins of his family. Israel as a nation, frankly, the, the outcome, the, the very purpose for which Joseph had gone down to Egypt and had been mistreated. God, God wanted to build a nation through which he would keep the promises of, of messianic love and redemption. Israel suffered, brought into slavery, the hardship of that. God taking them out of Egypt, where even though they were slaves, there was relative security. Taking them out into a wilderness place where he would thunder from a mountain and give them new laws. And then take them into their promised land because of their sin of mistrust and self-confidence. They were cursed, at least the first generation, to wander around in futility. One might think the next generation would learn their lessons. Seemingly they did pretty well under Joshua's leadership. But after Joshua and his fellow leaders are, leaders are off the scene, they go really into a cycle that lasts for the rest of the Old Testament of failure and repentance and forgiveness and success and Failure and repentance and forgiveness and success. And really what you find more and more is that it's just a bunch of failure with very little repentance and very little success and very little restoration. And though the literature of the Old Testament is fascinating, useful for our faith, and though this is getting a bit ahead of ourselves, not only did guys like Joseph Moses, David, Daniel, Ezekiel suffered. But as we read our New Testament, John the Baptist lived a life of suffering for one central purpose to herald the coming of the one who hopefully would make all things new. And again, getting a bit ahead of ourselves, but the ones who would take forward the message of the Messiah, they themselves would suffer greatly. And we who stand in the stead of the apostles, trusting in what God has revealed to them and through them, do we not stand in the same stead? You see, not only does the Bible contain a motif, a constant, inescapable, unavoidable reminder of suffering, anecdotally we join with them and we say we get it. Some of you were there today. And may God's grace has put us together so that even if we particularly aren't suffering, we are brought around others who are, and then you feel that. When you're rubbing up against people who are suffering, you cannot help but get a bit of it on you. Which is one of the reasons God has designed the church the way he has. God has infinite wisdom knew that suffering was basically unbearable. 
but it might be a bit more if we would be together. And what you'll find as you look back over the years is that often when you're suffering, your sister or brother might not be, then they can come alongside you. Maybe if you both are, there's someone else who's nodded. Then maybe it'll be your turn at some other point, but we come alongside one another because we recognize this theme, this motif, and, and though we wish it weren't the case, it's always been the case. That's what you do. So we know where suffering came from as a result of the fall. God cursed this world. It began to become undone. And as a result of that, it's just a motif that runs throughout the Bible. But I want to park here for just a few moments. Jesus suffered. The third thing I want to say is that Jesus suffered, that our suffering might come to an end. Jesus suffered, that our suffering might come to an end. Turn with me to the passage that you read, that James read it out loud a bit ago in our liturgy. Isaiah, the end of chapter 52, into chapter 53. Now, I have preached on this passage before. In fact, uh, on Sunday of 2013, I don't remember those things, by the way. I had to look back. But I did preach on this a year and a half or so ago, and I'm not going to go back to that whole thing. I will remind you of the structure of that passage. I'm not going to jot these things down so you can go back and study these things. This would be a, a really good set of eyeglasses, if I can use that analogy, so that you can look through those eyeglasses and, and see better. Glasses do they correct vision? Isaiah 52, verse 13 through chapter 3, 52, verse 12, provides you a set of lens, a, a, a pair of glasses through which you can see the world. I won't take time to read the whole chapter again, but just to show you the structure of this. The end of chapter 52 is unfortunately cut off in chapter 53. It's an unfortunate chapter break, but this section really begins in verse 13, chapter 52. In verses 13 through 15 at the end of chapter 52, we find that the servant, this is a foreshadowing, a prophetic message about Jesus, the servant, that's Jesus, would be glorified through his mission. So that's how the message begins, is that through his mission of redemption, he would be glorified. In fact, you see Jesus praying this in John 17. He prays to the Father right before he's about to be arrested in chapter 18. He prays, Restore to me the glory I had with you before the world existed. And in fact, do it through my redemptive work I'm about to accomplish. So Jesus receives glory through his redemptive work. Secondly, and you'll see that that's indented on the screen in front of you. This is sort of a, a follow-on thought. The servant would be rejected as insignificant. So when he came, he would not be recognized as glorious. He would be rejected as insignificant. You find that in verse 3, verse 2. So he didn't come being heralded as a king. The angels saw it, and a few faithful people did. But right away, the ruler of his land wanted him dead. To the point that he, like Israel, had to flee to Egypt. Jesus becomes the true, perfect Israel. Coming then back to the promised land of Canaan to herald forth God's message. Not received as a glorious king, but rejected. Another follow-on thought, and this is really the pinnacle of the chapter. Uh, Isaiah wrote in such a way that our attention would be drawn to these three verses, verses 4 through 6. The servant would be a substitute. 
That's the heart. That's the beating heart of this passage. The servant would be a substitute for the king. It's one of the few passages in all the Bible where it's proclaimed that the Son of God, the Alpha and Omega, the one who holds life and death in his hands, the Son of Man to whom the world is given over to his authority, over to his rule, this one would take on flesh and become a substitute for us. Isaiah begins to come back out of that primary point he wants to make. It says, the servant would be abused unjustly, just as he rejected as being insignificant in verses 1 through 3. Now, verses 7 through 9 of chapter 53, he's abused unjustly. In other words, for him to accomplish this work of substitution, we deserve the death. We deserve the wrath. If Jesus took it for us. He hung on the cross that we should have been hung on. He bore the rejection that should have been ours. He was separated from the presence of the Father when, when we should have experienced that for eternity. The wrath of the one that he had fashioned with his own hands and to whom he had breathed the breath of life. He died for them. But this would come only through unjust abuse. And then he ends the chapter in verses 10 through 12 by saying, the servant would be glorious in victory. Just like he said at the beginning. So he bookends this section by saying, the servant's glorious, but the glory will only come through suffering. So think about this point. Suffering is a result of the fall. Suffering is a motif that runs throughout the historic redemptive history. But Jesus suffered that our suffering might come to an end. So Jesus joins in that motif. He doesn't exist outside of it. In fact, the only way that he can put it back together to end the suffering is if he himself comes to suffer. So this means that the gospel is not just some, some little cute message on a board somewhere in your Sunday school room that you get your kids to pray. Jesus, please come into my heart and give me a personal relationship with you. And let me walk the streets of gold and give me a mansion. And we'll sing about the Jordan metaphorically. More than that. It's much bigger than that. You see, the gospel is about Jesus coming into time and space in a world that has come undone to a cosmos that has been rent in its very fabric, to a world that is suffering, he comes and suffers with us, and he injects it with grace, and he begins to put it back together. That's what he did. That's the gospel. And do you see why we have to talk about the gospel all the time? It's not just something we talk about at Easter, maybe at Christmas our candlelight service and wear our red sweaters and white turtlenecks. It's more than that. It's not just this cute message. It's everything we've got. It's all we've got, and it's everything we need. Jesus did not watch from heaven and look at us and say, you messed up. And frankly, because I'm God and you're not, I'm angry. You can have your own way. You can go have your own way. In 2013, when I went to our first trip to 
got to go down to uh, a slum, which is actually not far from Joseph and Salome's house. You could drive there four or five minutes and traffic would be decent. It never is, but it's normal traffic. It's called Kiber. It's the largest slum now in Africa. It's hard to estimate how many people live there. You, you've seen pictures of such things before, I'm sure, so I don't have to paint such a graphic picture, I guess, but it's just shack upon shack upon shack. In fact, if you get a bird's eye view of it, just stretches as far as you So the average dwelling place there is like a 12 by 12 edifice structure. Um, it's usually um, poles that they put mud and other things into to form walls and a corrugated tin roof, which leaks and so forth. And sometimes there can be eight or more people living in one structures. Um, they cook over charcoal. So there's certain portions of the country where they're cutting down trees all the time. If you drive through the portions of the country, which I got to do this past trip a few months ago, uh, there's mega charcoal every time. So they buy little buckets of charcoal each day. They buy a little, uh, few pieces of meat that they can afford. Sometimes um, they'll buy a few little minnows. They're not the Kenya borders Lake Victoria. They drag huge nets through Lake Victoria and pull out minnows. And you, you walk through the slums and the marketplace with these mounds of minnows. And they'll buy a few minnows and cook them in their soup to give it a little bit of taste. And They'll buy a tiny little bit of oil. They live hand to mouth every day. So you'll see ladies sitting on street corners. And, uh, and they'll be sitting there all day. And their hope is that somebody from one of the wealthy neighborhoods will come and pick them up. And then they'll go to the house and do some cleaning and do some laundry. And then hopefully, if they've done really well and work fast, they can go back to the corner and get maybe two jobs for the day. And they might make two or three dollars. And they go back and they buy their little minnows and their oil and their charcoal. There's over a million people in this one slum. Uh, the slum that Joseph and Salome minister in is called Kalambari. It's about half that size, which of course is still huge. Kiber is the worst. There's been countless documentaries done on Kiber. It's sort of the place that everybody talks about. Some estimates uh, are that up to 60% of the population of a million people have AIDS, or at least their children. And if you're 15 and you're a girl, you're not pregnant, you're in a And it's not because you've been married early. Raw sewage runs through the streets. Children play on heaps of garbage bags that are filled with human waste because there's no proper toilets. It wasn't until a few years ago that there was even clean water that was brought into these homes. It's an unspeakable place. It's worse than you can imagine. Nick and I walked through the streets person that lived there would not have done so otherwise. It is, it is the epitome of human suffering. But if you look off in the distance a little bit, there is a golf course where rich Westerners play, or sometimes rich Africans, with water, water in the golf course to keep it green. Well, these people are, have no access to clean water. And then just beyond that, is the presidential palace of the guy who was president two or three presidents ago, who, along with his sons, siphoned billions of dollars off of the backs of poor Kenyans to enrich themselves. And his house is kind of on a ride on a knoll, and it looks down into the slum. It's probably way on the day when the winds prevail toward his house, you can smell it. And I don't sit 
On the one hand, you have unspeakable brokenness, seemingly unfixable poverty, and then you have abundance and wealth that none of us could ever imagine. That's not what our Savior's like. The one who existed in glory, the one who possessed the deed to this world, made it the only The one who had angels swirling around him from time gone by telling him how holy he was. He did not peer down at the slum of this world full of brokenness and sewage and peer at us in simple amusement. He came down into it. He became one of us. He walked among the tenements. He healed diseases. He came to suffering. And he's making all things new. That's the gospel. And it does us well to remember what the gospel actually is. You see, when Jesus came to the cross, we learn from Matthew's gospel that he hung there and whole world around him at least became dark. A symbol of God's wrath. But all that wrath was laser directed upon the sun. Earthquakes happened. And all who were there recognized that something significant was happening. There was almost another sort of decreation going on. And the sun himself was experiencing the abundant wrath of God reserved for him from before the foundation of the world that should have been meted out upon every human that ever lived. But all of that wrath, all of it for God's people was directed upon Jesus. So we who have been chosen in God need not suffer that wrath. He is And is that not essentially Isaiah is saying here. In Isaiah 53 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He knew it. He never had before, but now he did. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Verse 5, he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities upon him. Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed, Isaiah says. We are healed. And so I say to you, if you have trusted Jesus, the healing has been initiated. And the here and now, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the healing has been initiated. And you know that. Sometimes your painful experiences call that into question, but you know it. Life is much less futile than it used to be. You have the grace of the Holy Spirit to be with you in your trials and struggles. Your relationships begin to operate on such a level that there can be harmony and peace. 
horrible decisions you made and all the consequences that flow from them start to become less and less. God ministers to you through his word and you have hope, not only for the hereafter, but for the here and now. Redeeming your people. It allows you to make sense of the tragic things that happened to you. To walk in confident faith that even though you might have done things a bit differently, your father could walk in as well and you can hang on to him. And if now you're in your 20s or 30s or 40s or maybe a little bit beyond, you know. You see, Jesus suffered that our suffering might come to an end. That's present suffering. That's future suffering, too. You see, there is a suffering that is worse than cancer. There is a suffering that is worse than losing a child. There is a suffering that is worse than losing a spouse. There's a suffering that's worse than losing a friend or losing all of your money. See, when it comes down to it, there's coming suffering at the end. The wrath of God upon sin. And harsh as it may be, it will be a just punishment. You see, Jesus not only frees us from suffering now, he is assured the suffering that is going to come for rebels in the end will not be he already took that on the cross. Jesus went through hell on the cross so we don't have to go to hell forever. What part of suffering did Jesus not address on the cross? And fourthly and lastly today, we are to join with Jesus in the life of suffering as we aid others and await the renewal of all things. We join with Jesus suffering as we aid others and await the renewal of all things. That's where we are today. Paul says in Colossians chapter 1 that he is filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. What's that mean? Cryptic statement. Certainly can't mean, especially from Paul's pen, that somehow the atoning work of Christ is insufficient. No. He means that being a person that joins the messianic band, you're a person of Jesus. He suffered. So will you. Whenever you invade a suffering world as a person of the Messiah, you're going to get some on you. In fact, more, probably, than the people who don't belong to the Messiah. Isn't that what Asaph is saying in Psalm 73? Hey, God, why is it that all these people who reject you seem to have it so easy? But your people seem to suffer more. By the end of the psalm, he says, I get it, though. There's hope for us. There's hope for your people, especially from eternal people. You join with Jesus, and you recognize that suffering is just inevitable. It's just going. When you help a man who's struggling with an addiction to pornography, a man who is suffering as a result of his own sin that he's made a mess of his marriage, it's going to cost you something, brother. Late night phone calls, long discussions of accountability, discussions where your brother doesn't want to listen to you because. 
your sister, and she doesn't want to submit to her husband because she wants to rule over him because she doesn't trust him because he's not the nicest guy in the world. She calls you every single day at 4 p.m. crying because he's about to be home in an hour and she doesn't know what she's going to do. It's going to cost you something. You want to raise little kids and not let them have their own way? You want to raise children that treasure Jesus and go his way? It's going to cost you something. You want a marriage that glorifies God, that pictures the beautiful redemption that exists in Christ and his people? You want that kind of marriage? It's going to cost you something. You want to be a light for Jesus in this world? You want to proclaim the gospel of mercy and grace? You want to tell that to people who do not yet know or have perhaps even rejected outright? That's going to cost you something. disabused the disciples of the notion that he was going to turn them into little princes. They wanted that. Remember? James and John, their, their mother comes to Jesus and is like, hey, make sure my two get places of honor in the kingdom. Jesus said, that's not what this is about. In fact, the disciples are still confused because in Acts chapter 1, when he's about to ascend back to heaven to glory, they say, okay, now, kingdom's coming, right? <laughs> no, no, no. If you know anything about the life and the history of the apostles, they all saw beheadings, imprisonment, crucifixion. It wasn't the life of Jesus. But we join with him and we trust him, believing that his suffering intersects with ours. And we take that message to others to help it intersect with theirs. We abide in him and we trust him. And just like he trusted the Father, just like he himself relied upon the Spirit, we do the same. We don't, we don't do this on our own. If Jesus himself and in his incarnation trusted the Father, you see Jesus at intervals praying long periods of prayer, sometimes all night long. You see this especially in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is begging the Father to help him do his will. The Scriptures teach us that Jesus walked and trusted the power of the Spirit. If he himself did that, we have to do that. But we have what we need. He who walked in the power of the Spirit gave it to us. He gave us the comforter. The Holy Spirit is called in John 14 through 16. The one who cries out with us, Abba, Father, Paul says in Romans 8. We have what we need. We have the Trinity. See that? We abide in Christ, we trust in the Spirit, and we live doesn't mean we don't suffer. It doesn't mean it'll be easy when we do it. It just means we can. Let's turn to the end. I say here in this last point that I want us to bet that we, we do this while we await the finality of all things. So let's turn to Revelation 21. Again, familiar ground for us. We've walked through Suffering will come in. Revelation 21 1, the apostle says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and earth had passed away, and the sea 
stuff that reminded us of suffering, the old environment of suffering, it's gone. I saw the holy city of New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them in their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall she be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things passed away. Verse 5. He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Remember, this is a message for John and for the churches. Not just to help them to trust in what's coming some thousands of years later, but to help them then. And to help us now. What will this city be like? Well, it's going to be a special city. If you were to take time with me and think about its measurements, its cube, which is kind of odd, therefore it's probably somewhat metaphorical. But it's some kind of cube. Why is that? Why was it demonstrated to be cubic? Well, if you know anything about the Old Testament temple, the Holy of Holies, the place where the Ark of the Covenant was supposed to be, where God's very presence was, that part of the structure was cute. Do you see here what the city is like? The whole city. The whole thing's holy. And we get access to it all. Not just some high priest. We're there with him everywhere. That's the point. What are the foundations like? Verse 14. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. A reminder that he is the one sacrificed for us, Isaiah 53. So why is that cube city brought down? And upon what basis can we enter into it confidently? Because its foundations are built upon a sacrifice. The one who suffered, the one who brings us into his presence, where there will be no more suffering. See that? There's coming a city that will dwell with him because we will have his name on our foreheads, we will get to be with him forever and dwell with him, and there will be no more suffering. That's the way to have to look forward to it. So, brothers and sisters, suffering will not go away until that day comes. You and I will suffer. Ever since the fall, people have been. But Jesus invaded that, joined with it. Today is just one more brick for trust.